welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Hello and welcome to the January 2023 episode. Happy New Year. Today I would like to devote this episode to a listener request, the first ever listener request that I've gotten. Uh, via the podcast, and that is also in relation to an essay that I've been working on the last few months about uh, focal points and just how focal points are various theories that I'm developing as to how focal points emerge and dissipate in perception, how things become noticeable and how some of these things could be used as strategies for making artworks and designs and visual objects. And so I got this request from a parent commenting that so much of the content of this podcast is steeped in a lot of science, some mathematics, getting into physics, chemistry, optics, anatomy, physiology, like the makeup of the eye and the visual system, how we how we perceive colors, which also involves psychology, just all this myriad of different professions and disciplines that, you know, going into art school like I did in the in the late 80s, let's see, it was 1988, I went to the Columbus College of Art and Design, and one of the draws for me to go to art school was that there would be no science and no math classes. And that was a big deal, because I was terrible in those subjects. Although it was very strange. I remember in high school taking a Pascal programming class where we were doing rather complicated programs using calculus and things like that and I was I had I had one of the top scores in the class actually the teacher posted everybody's scores on a piece of paper right by the door I I don't know if that would be legal these days but everybody's grades were right there and I was at the top for most of the class and uh, let's say that was on Tuesday afternoons. Well, Tuesday mornings, I was in trigonometry class, failing, struggling to get a D, I remember. And then right after lunch, I'd be upstairs doing calculus. And this class actually was modeled, I remember, after a college-level course. So it was kind of like advanced for high school work. That's just how it struck me as baffling. Well, and on the other hand, too, I remember taking geometry classes, and I did really well in that. So I could visualize things, and I get A's in geometry, 
A's in computer programming, D's, I don't think I ever failed a math class, but it would be like a D minus in pretty much every other class like that too. Same, same goes with like sciences, chemistry, biology, just struggled to even get a C. So then, you know, and I'm even kind of surprising myself. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll hear me say, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm trying to figure this out, like what's happening inside of our minds when we're viewing colors and how we perceive them and all these different effects that are happening. It's really baffling, considering, too, that this project of mine, this the podcast, Chromosphere, the color theory podcast grew out of a, a research project that I started where it didn't, I didn't really start it. I was teaching a class. I was due to teach a class during the pandemic and it was all online. And a portion of the class involved uh, color theory. The word color was in the class's title. It was a drawing class. And so I thought, okay, it's an intermediate level class the only prerequisite was drawing one, which every student has to take. So basically anyone in the college could take this class. So I thought, I have no idea what kind of level or knowledge level people are going to be coming into the class with um, in terms of color and understanding uh, color, color mixing and all that kind of stuff. So I started by making a list. I just started a Google Doc that is uh, just a list of terms like hue, value, chroma, and like short definitions, uh, local color, you know, like the, you know, that we call apples red and bananas yellow. But if you look at them, there's all sorts of reds and all sorts of other colors within a red banana or a red apple. So at any rate, this list has grown as I've come across all these things. It's now... 224 pages long, and I think the bibliography is probably about 20 or 25 of those pages. So just going through and naming different things and trying to find their definitions, and then different people in history, uh, like Mary Gartside, who I'd never heard of before this project, or Emily Noyes Vanderpool, and researching their lives and learning about them, and then Essentially, out of that process, over the course of a year, I started to notice these kind of like threads uh, that kind of flowed through the research. And those threads, those connecting threads, became the various episodes for this podcast. So if you go back through season one and look at all those topics, those are the different things that I was learning about. And I had, in some cases, I had some idea of what I was getting myself into. And uh, in terms of like, I've noticed for years, decades, that the color of sunlight changes throughout the course of the year. I never knew why. And so that was that. So it was just kind of questions like that, like, well, can I figure that out? And through Googling stuff and following different papers and research, periodicals and through JSTOR mainly. And actually the National Health Institute has a lot of, the NIH, National Institute of Health, has a huge database on 
published papers and peer-reviewed articles uh, that I've, I've learned quite a bit about optics and how the color of sunlight uh, shifts throughout the year, or, or I should say how the perception of sunlight shifts. So after all these years, going, starting out in 1988, going to college, specifically because I wouldn't have to take math classes or science classes, now I'm like this guy like going through all this science, which a lot of it has to do with mathematics. I'm kind of baffled by the whole thing myself. To me, it's interesting, and it's been fun making these episodes and researching them and sharing what I've learned with you and everybody who's listened. And I think we just passed like 16,000 downloads on the whole work. So there's people listening, which is just really cool. Part of it too, I mentioned that I'm working on this essay uh, outlining some of the things that I've learned about how focal points might be created within an artwork. Meaning like what draws our attention to certain things over another thing? And then is there an order of noticeability of the things that we notice? Which I believe that there is. And in researching that, it sent me back to reading Leon Battista Alberti's um, treatise on painting called Della Pittura from... 1435 and 1436, he wrote the first edition in Latin and transcribed it to Italian a year later in 1436. And in it, there's a quote. He kind of goes, he goes through, all of these treatises seem to go through, they follow a certain pattern. Maybe not all of them, but many of them do. They start off by listing the person's credentials or and a history of the current knowledge of color vision or how colors operate. So if you read like Mary Gartside's book, she does that to a certain extent. Emily Noyes Vanderpool spends quite a bit of time at the beginning of her book writing about these histories and throughout. Johannes Itten spends the entire, I don't know, first chapter or something kind of going through like various like what is trichromatic vision and Bezold and all these characters um, uh, herring and stuff that he ends up then quoting to support his own theories and so Alberti is doing the same thing he references ancient Greek artists that most of the material from them is lost and was even lost at the time of Alberti yet he knew about it somehow but he mentions, he writes that this information from the, these particular artists that he's citing is lost to time. But he, there is a quote in there. I'll just read that within the pages of, of Della Pittura, uh, Alberti writes, how does he frame it? He's, he's writing about the close relationship between light and color in making each other visible. He describes Renaissance theories of color vision and how illumination reveals colors in order to illustrate how colors change as they move from direct light to being in shadow. So he was trying to tackle like just how is that happening? He avoids drawing comparisons between Italian painting techniques and pure 
abstraction of nature through mathematics, even while advocating for the use of linear perspective in design. However, he argues <laughs> that all artists should study mathematics. All artists should study mathematics. So try telling me that when I was 17, 18 years old, back in the olden days. But over 500 years ago, close to 600 years ago, we have Alberti saying that all artists should study mathematics while at the same time drawing a distinction between the pure mathematics, the pure abstract mathematics of nature, and what is the job of an artist or painter in his case, because this is, he's talking about painting techniques. But he also, he writes books too about architecture. So I, I think he's talking about painting in this book, but I think a lot of his stuff is like theoretical to people making visual objects of some kind, either a building or a painting or whatever. And that he saw mathematics as, as nature as purely abstract and describable through mathematics, such as linear perspective, which Brunelleschi uh, uh, Filippo uh, Brunelleschi, is that his name? He was, uh, I believe, the first to write down the principles of, of uh, linear perspective in, in Europe, at least, in a, in a European language. And Alberti devotes this book, Della Pittura, to Brunelleschi uh, in, the, in the title page. And so I, I don't know if they were friends or if he just really admired him. I'll have to figure that out. The significance of this to me is that throughout this book, which basically spurred what is called the High Renaissance, so anything like Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, I can't find evidence that Leonardo da Vinci read this book, but he has to have read this book. I just, I just haven't been able to find a link yet. But a lot of da Vinci's writings and what became his treatise, which was a collection of his, of his diary-type writings, it echoes a lot. It's written a lot in the same way that Alberti writes, and he covers a lot of the same principles. So I'd be very surprised if he wasn't aware of Della Patera. So the thing is, though, is that what Alberti is making an argument in this book is that artists should follow nature as their guide, as opposed to previous treatises on painting, like from Sonino Sonini, didn't exactly go that route. They, they were very prescriptive, like Sonini's book, The Craftsman's Handbook. It, it reads like a cookbook. He has all of these little recipes for how to do this, how to do that, how to draw, how to paint the, the face of a dead man. He tells artists how to mix up the paints, start a lot of the portraiture stuff that he talks about, painting a person's face, pa how to paint a young man's face, I think, is a chapter. You know, it's like very specific. And a lot of them say, uh, he says, to start off with a layer of green paint. So if you're looking at like medieval kind of European art, pre-Renaissance kind of era stuff, or like what's called the proto-Renaissance, I believe, you'll often be able to detect an undertone of green in the face. And that's because they'd start off with uh, Viridian, I think. So there's like this instructional of like how to paint, how to paint the mantle of of the Virgin or something, you know, of Mary. 
and how to, you know, what blue to use and all that kind of stuff. And so what Alberti is coming along and saying is like, stop doing that. Start actually looking at the subject and draw and paint what you see. Use nature as your guide. But at any rate, Alberti makes this request of artists, this instruction to go to nature, which he then immediately, like within the context of the book, identifies nature as best described abstractly through mathematics. So he's drawing a direct line between abstraction, nature, and painting, and and like mathematics. So it makes me think that that could be the root of abstraction, the roots of abstraction in Western uh, painting and drawing and art making and that kind of stuff. That's the theory I'm kind of working on. Because to equate or to qualify and quantify like how to decide whether or not something is good, he relates it back to nature, how it is or is not like nature, and this term that he refers to as historia, which doesn't have a direct English translation from Italian, but it relates to language and rhetoric and like syntax and like how words are used in a sentence to articulate an idea. Yeah, to communicate an idea, some words and sentences being more eloquent than others. You know, for instance, I could say, hey, get over here and sit down and um, I got to talk to you. That's one way of saying, or another way to say it could be, would you mind joining me for a few minutes? I'd like to talk. It's like basically saying the same thing, yet there's different sets of words. And so he's making an argument for that there's a myriad ways to paint the same thing, the same object, like Mary and Jesus, but that there are ways that are more eloquent than others that he refers to as this idea of historia that relate back to how orators were judged to be some better than others. And so there it is. The roots of abstraction lay in the observation of nature, the study of stuff like linear perspective and other mathematical things, the study of light, and how is it that a color changes when it goes from being in sunlight to being in shadow, what's happening there. He was trying to figure that out and trying to describe it in this book. He didn't really come to like a real solid conclusion, just listed his observations. So our listener request portion here is to go into some of that, those expectations of like, what did I think I was going to learn when I went to art school? What did, when I set out to become an artist, did I know I was going to get into all of this as opposed to just paint all day? And which is fun, which is great too, which I definitely, which that's, that's the deal. And I thought, why does knowing any of this stuff mean anything? You know, I could just paint, you know, like just call it intuition and, and just run with it. 
And I, I think that there's some validity to that. I, I think that that's fine. But I, I don't know. I, I've, I've thought, too, like, I don't really need to understand how it is that my heart operates in order for it to do its job and pump blood and oxygen um, throughout my body. At the end of the day, I don't really need to know what is going on in there in order for it to happen. But at the same time, if I learn a little bit about it, maybe I won't eat at McDonald's morning, noon, and night. But anyway, and so our reader, my reader, or the listener writes, and they're going to be remain anonymous just to make things mysterious. <laughs> they write, we see that our child has a gift towards something before they are old enough to understand what they are doing. We encourage our children with a myriad of learning toys Toys for building, i.e. Uh, Lincoln Logs, uh, those, the, that was one of my favorites in the old days. Erector sets, puzzles, reading, coloring books, play kitchens, fully equipped, taking uh, camping vacations in the great outdoors. Why? Because as main encouragers throughout our child's life, every parent sees how creative their child is then wants them to have whatever it takes to supply the tools they need in life to be successful. Schools, they write, need to be that special place where all kids want to get out of bed in the morning. We, as a society, need to be encouraging to every child, not just a select few who can learn quickly, why are school programs that are first placed in the curriculum chopping block usually the arts? So I think this person is speaking through their direct uh, experience. And although it is something that I uh, experienced as uh, when I was in high school, you know, there wasn't much art instruction. There wasn't, I mean, I took an art class every semester through high school from sophomore on and I got an A every semester and I don't remember doing much in those classes it was basically like a free-for-all the teacher never I don't remember the teacher ever doing a lesson he sat at his desk and we goofed around at the tables and I don't yeah <laughs> so but it was fine it kept me it kept me busy Kept me out of another math class um, or science class, which I was happy about, and I made stuff. But yeah, you know, like when I painted my first mural was that summer of 1988 when I graduated from high school, and it was on it was on a video store. I don't know if anybody listening to this is old enough to remember, you know, like video VCR uh, tapes. Uh, there was this video store in my neighborhood, so you'd go there and rent a video and then bring it home and watch it and then invariably turn it, bring it back like two weeks late and have to pay an arm and a leg for, well, whatever. <laughs> anyway, this these guys owned this video store. It was like a local thing. Uh, just a couple of guys owned it, and they had a big wall. And a friend of mine worked at the video store and mentioned to these guys that I was a painter and artist and stuff. And so they said, all right, you can paint a mural on the side of our building. And if we don't like it, we'll just paint it white again. We'll pay for the materials and we'll give you a couple hundred bucks. And so I spent most of the summer in my spare time painting this thing. 
and it was like 45 feet long and 14 feet high. That number stands out, 14 feet. A lot of buildings are 14 feet tall, <laughs> I learned over the years at least. And so I just did it. I had this innate ability to draw something in my sketchbook and then draw it again like 10 feet tall, and it was nearly identical. I think what I've thought in the past about this as I've gotten older is I think I was too dumb to question whether or not I could do something like that. So I just did it. <laughs> so yeah, talking about letting an intu- intuition and just like, you know, just working at something, you know, like, do, do I need to know how it is that my brain could extrapolate things into like scale? Actually, I still don't understand how that happens. At any rate, maybe that'll become part of the color theory project too is how we well it's how do we visualize space maybe it already is part of the color theory thing because it is about visualizing space and navigating space uh okay i'll put that on the list uh back to our our mystery listener quote what they wrote to me why are the programs first to get arts to get cut in this parent's opinion The schools are neglecting to include very important education through as many means as they can to include each and every child, since all kids are equally as important in the overall scheme of things. Each child is unique and needs to be acknowledged as important for who they are. Following up with cutting school art programs, I believe that some schools do not understand the art of the arts. Being an art student or aspiring to be an art student, some parents also also are not sure they want their child to attend an art school because they may believe that the child will not get a well-rounded education while they are just creating stuff. Contrary to many beliefs, an education in the arts is very broad, encompassing, a full range education, which includes the sciences, mathematics, geography, physiology, physics, history, biology, psychology, chemistry, architecture, anatomy, optics, public speaking, and so much more. In other words, our our listener writes, Art students are very equipped with an education which will offer them successful careers in an array of interesting fields, such as becoming teachers, instructors, professors, leadership skills, authors, artists in paintings, uh, photography, video and movie productions, computer graphics, woodworking, sculpture, anything which qualifies under the heading of visual arts. Let us not forget the performing arts, such as dance, choir, professional singing, writing, music, musicians, acting, theater, entertainment, comedians. All mentioned here are what everyone enjoys and looks forward to viewing, listening to, or participating in. After all, all livelihoods have many areas of interesting expertise and importance within our communities and lives. So is art not in the same category as viewing a great feat from the engineering world? 
varied talents and interests should never be cut from any educational institution, end quote. I should say our, our listener here, our anonymous listener, has uh, experience in, in education. Yeah, it makes me think, you know, as, a, as an art student myself, back in the 80s, I ended up going to Columbus for one year, and being a student wasn't my thing at the time. And so after that year, which is called the foundation year, I dropped out and I ended up going to Alaska and bumming around and uh, basically working in restaurants and doing stuff. All the while, kept painting and um, working on murals and and, uh, my own personal paintings and stuff like that. I always had something going on. I worked in restaurants to get by, and I always had some project either in the planning stage or a mural that I was actually working on uh, outside of my restaurant hours cooking. The reason I went back to art school was because I was commissioned to do a mural that had a lot of figures in it, a lot of people, a diner scene I was painting. And I quickly realized that I didn't know how to draw the figure and didn't know how to even start I remember distinctly thinking it would take six weeks, and it took me like nine months. I just kept putting it off and and just really dragging my feet and painting over things over and over and over. It was kind of a nightmare because I was just like stuck with this thing, and I couldn't get past it and finish it, and I eventually did. But then I thought, all right, if I'm going to do this and not have a heart attack by the time I'm like 30 or something, I'm going to have to get a proper education. So I went back to school in 1995 and graduated in 99 art school in St. Paul uh, that is no longer there called the uh, College of Visual Arts. But it was at that time that I took, you know, I retook a lot of foundation classes. I retook drawing. So drawing one, which, you know, really focuses on vision and perception and your senses in general, the senses of space. So we'd have to draw these still lives took figure drawing classes, so going back to that mural that took me forever and almost drove me insane, I learned about the figure and human anatomy and in two-dimensional design class classes that I took introduced me to all these ideas of like studying composition. Like I said, I'm working on this essay about focal points and how is it that certain things become more noticeable. So like in 2D class and had a color theory component as well as the color theory classes that I took thinking about value contrast hue contrast and chroma contrast how that has led to some of these podcasts that I've talked about while the harmony podcast traced the notion of how harmony kind of came down to us through the centuries and this idea of a split complementary analogous color scheme where all the colors of the palette mixed to a neutral gray was deemed to be harmonious and the impact that that idea has had over the last uh, hundred years on visual objects that are made uh, packaging design and composition is just incredible so I mean, talk about an industry, you know, so like our anonymous writer is saying, going back to my own experience, 
my experience with with being a student was just basically a torture. Like I couldn't remember how to spell anything. I, I mean, it just goes on down the line. And yet, I remember a friend of mine, <laughs> a friend of mine said years ago. He said, "Well, if you could have taken that that spelling exam by doing a dance, I bet you would have done really well." You know, like, can you imagine, like, all the kids in it, all the fifth graders, like, totally, like, dancing all around the room to spell the word apple or whatever? <laughs> but why not? And then I took classes like uh, 3D design, so studying three-dimensional space where we had to, you know, work with materials and learn how to do run a bandsaw and a table saw. And I kind of grew up, my dad and grandpa had a workshop and so I knew how to do some of that stuff, but you know, to a lot of I remember a lot of this, my my peers like they'd never run a table saw before. It was terrifying, but you learn how to do it and work it safely, and and that's part of being in school. Actually, my my grandpa on my mom's side, he was an artist, and he went to art school as well. Uh, but never finished. He went before the war in 1937. He took Saturday art classes in 1937 as a high school student. And then later, uh, as part of the GI Bill, as a veteran from World War II in 1946 and seven, he went to art school. Uh, Then he ended up dropping out because his family growing. He eventually had nine children, so there wasn't room for art school. But all throughout his life, uh, until until his death in 1992, he painted and drew and built furniture in, in his basement work, workshop. And that kind of all goes back to our friend Alberti that I quoted at the beginning by saying that all artists should learn mathematics and how I set out to, as a young 18-year-old, how I set out to never learn anything about math ever again. And here I am, one of the biggest murals that I've ever painted, or the biggest mural I ever painted was with my friend and collaborator, Jeremy Shapinsky, who did the, who, who's a musician and did the title music for me on this podcast. But he and I painted a gigantic mural downtown St. Paul of two spirals that are referred to as golden spirals, which are based on the Fibonacci sequence of this uh, ratio of height to width and the spiral that expands as it get, as it goes out from the center, and that this spiral is found throughout nature, uh, for instance, in the head of sunflowers. And um, it, so this mural is in front of a park. It's on a building, and at its base is a small park where they were planting sunflowers. So we painted a giant... 9,000 square foot, I think it's like a six or seven story building, these two huge polka dot spirals that uh, picked up on the uh, spiral that's within the, the way the seeds are organized in the head of a sunflower, and that that spiral can be measured specifically as, as it's known as the golden ratio. And so there I'm like stuck in this world of mathematics that I never wanted to be part of. So I guess it's all one big circle. Well, and even too, 
I mentioned that Jeremy is a musician. I should do like a, a listener poll or something. Over the years, the hundreds, if not thousands of people that I know are going to be artists, their students learning to be artists, or the number of people who are in the visual arts and also who are musicians in some capacity, either full-blown, like they are in bands and they play every weekend or whatever, I'd say it's it's got to be 60 to 70% of the people that I know that are visual artists are also musicians, that they play something or they sing or they do something related to music. I've asked classes over the years, raise your hand if you play something, and, and generally about two-thirds of the class raises their hands. Totally unscientific poll. <laughs> but I think that there's just something there, too, because there's something about the innate gravitation towards being a visual artist that I experienced that I think a lot of people might, where I just felt that this is where I wanted to go. And it would had the benefit of not ever having to study math, which has turned out great. But it wasn't something that I was aware of that I wanted, how I was self-selecting for this thing. Like I just painted the first mural that I did. It was huge. The largest piece of artwork I had worked on prior to that was like a four by eight sheet of of uh, plywood we painted on I remember a project in in high school doing that the one project that the teacher did actually <laughs> he bought five of these pieces of plywood and gave them to five different pairs of students and so my theory is is there an innate understanding through a visual you know kind of innate to developed visual understandings of the world, if there's an abstract quality that they can re- relate to that allows them to bridge into music as well. I, well, I, I don't know what I'm talking about now. Maybe some musicians could help straighten me out because I'm one of the people who is not a musician and cannot uh, play. I tried playing the trombone when I was in grade school and it was a disaster. It was total torture. But yeah, so like all of these things that are part of being a creative person and then the relations they have between practical applications. So going back to our anonymous reader and addressing like these ideas of, you know, like like school is about to start again. It's the beginning of a new spring semester in a lot of places. And so it's like all these parents on the edge, like, oh, my kid's going to go to art school. Are they ever going to be able to support themselves? What a, like, is this worth it? It's, and these things that I know my parents had a real problem with me wanting to go to art school. It was not an easy sell for me. It was, uh, you know, a bit of an uphill to convince my parents that this was going to be okay. You know, it reminds me of years later after... I want to say it was like 2010 or somewhere around there. I did a big mural project through the Minneapolis College of Art and Design with uh, the Medtronic Corporation at their headquarters are in a town just north, a suburb north of Minneapolis. And we did a huge painting that, or it was actually a big, imagine like a quilt of paintings it was it was about 30 or 35 different paintings of all different sizes that all went together to uh, form one giant rectangle that was it was 24 feet tall by 17 feet across and it was hung in this big atrium 
where Medtronic does a lot of their, where all their laboratories are, or, or their, some of their main laboratories on this particular campus. And the subject of the paintings was the work that was being done at Medtronic, areas of science that was taking place in these laboratories. And so the way it came about was I was working with seven different students from Minneapolis College of Art and Design as interns. And we got a tour of the facility, and one of the students noticed that in all the areas there were whiteboards so that the scientists could draw on them. It dawned on us that the scientific process that they were engaged with was very similar to the artistic process, the creative process that artists and designers engage in. We have sketchbooks and various other things that we do all of our doodling and brainstorming and drawing on just to test out ideas. And often with a group, you know, it's not it's not always just singular. You know, you might be sitting at a table having lunch with somebody and be like, hey, look at my ideas, and you start drawing them out right at there, and like, this is what I want to do. And they're like, oh, yeah, that'd be sweet. And actually, we have a saying in our studio that 50% of creativity is lunch, basically based on that idea, you know, you know, kind of playing off of that, what is it, 90%, 10% inspiration, 90% perspiration, the inspiration, the ah moment or whatever, and then the rest is just work. Uh, we don't go by that in our studio. Lunch is 50%, and then the other 50% is broken up in a bunch of other sp- stuff. And it, I mean, it involves work for sure, but we don't go by that other one. We we do lunch, and it's during these conversations where the ideas get get resolved, they take shape. And so we saw evidence of this, of scientists spoke with the people at Medtronic that were our contacts, and they were like, yeah, and they shared all these formulas with them, and we made paintings. So, so they, they shared the stuff that was written on those whiteboards, and we made paintings of them. And that became the giant quilt. And then at the end, I remember they had like a reception when the thing was completed. It was a big project. We were there, and one of the head scientists that work in the, in the laboratory area came up to me, and he said, Ed... I don't know how you did it, but in those paintings, you captured every, you represented every type of science, like math, all areas of mathematics and um, chemistry and biology that they do there. He said that we captured every single one. There wasn't like an area that was left out. And I was thinking to myself, Oh, well, that's good. I I have no idea. I was just picking these formulas because they look cool. <laughs> they they looked like, you know, it was like, wow, that's a cool-looking shape. Like, I don't even know what the heck it means. It's like this weird, crazy-looking Z shape or something. And that's why we picked them and made them. We made copies of, like, microscopic imagery. And, and so there you go. It's like this intuitive thing which for me is just like a product of dumbness of just being like, Hey, that looks cool. I'm going to do it. So, and then to find out later that it actually is something that actually means something. 
And once again, I don't need to know how my heart is pumping in order for that blood to get into my brain to make all this stuff kind of happen. I guess there it is, is this wandering diatribe based on our nice uh, comment that we got from, from the anonymous mystery writer listener. And so maybe I'll leave it at that for this podcast that has been all over the place. And yes, and look forward to, I'm finishing up my Focal Points essay, and I will be reading that as part of uh, the following. I think I've come up with some stuff that I'm pretty proud of, so I want to share that with you as well. So those will be some of the next episodes. Uh, So thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast, on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinski for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinski again for their production, consulting, and editing.